I think it was really telling when a lot of these people started calling these protesters animals when they purport to be animal lovers, right? Like, why would they use animal as an insult when they say that they're animal lovers? I originally wanted to kick off season two of Animalistic with an antidote to the darker days of approaching winter here in the Northern Hemisphere, with a heartwarming look at an aspect of the human-animal relationship that many of us find familiar and comforting. Quite a lot of us have currently, or at least have experienced at some point during our lives, a kinship with an animal outside of our species. The non-human members of our households usually hold a special place in our hearts, and anyone who has grown up with an animal fondly remembers them as an important part of their childhood. Kinship with animals is undoubtedly a positive thing. There's an ever-growing mountain of scientific evidence that shows how good living with an animal can be for our mental and physical health. So, being curious about the evolutionary mystery of why such relationships exist, I tracked down someone who is devoting her time to studying exactly this. My name is Maythan and I'm currently doing my PhD at the University of Edinburgh and my project is about multi-species kinship between dogs and their humans, mostly in Edinburgh but kind of to the broader internet sphere as well. I've, I've always loved dogs. I don't know where it became, what it became, it is like how it is today but I, I knew like growing up I'm just like oh man like I can't wait to be an adult so that I can have my own dog. Like that was one of the milestones that I wanted to achieve and a lot of people I, I realized like around me my friends and my family members are just like oh yeah like I would love to have my own dog and yeah I, I just got really curious about you know all things related to dogs I guess it's like you know what do we do to produce knowledge about our dogs and what do we do with that knowledge and like what happens when we think of our dogs as children and like what can our relationship with dogs tell us about, like, race? You would expect that this topic would be nothing but the most beautiful side of humanity, the part of us that loves unconditionally and cares for beings unrelated to us, something that, although not unknown in other species, is still altogether quite rare in the animal kingdom. However, through her research, Maeth uncovered some much less flattering truths about human nature and encountered a jarring and quite shocking dark side. Like it almost feels like a fever dream in hindsight, like reading through the comments to this like post that was made in this UK based dog group on Facebook, full of people who are self-proclaimed dog lovers. And I saw this like whole slew of white people in the UK calling for not just like incarceration, but violence towards Black Lives Matter protesters. So it started as a project fueled by passion for dogs, and particularly her own dog, has developed into something quite different. I just wanted to collect dog stories. <laughs> During this interview with Maith, I was lucky enough to meet, over Zoom of course, the inspiration for her project a beautiful rescue named Frank. He might bark in the middle of nowhere for no good reason, but he's generally a very good boy. I got him 
in 2017 and he came to me as a two-year-old like adult dog from Russia and at that time I was living in Canada and I, I tried to adopt from like a local shelter but like it was just so impossible as somebody who wasn't like wasn't a homeowner and didn't have a back garden so yeah I never got approved for a Canadian adoption through a shelter scheme so I started looking at international rescues and I adopted Frank from this rescue called Sochi Dogs. Yeah, and they basically have a shelter, physical shelter there that rescues stray dogs and they adopt them out to different North American cities. He is gonna turn seven in March, according to his passport, but who knows really. He's blossoming into his dashing gentleman phase of his life. This project is basically just like a love letter to Frank, thanking him for everything that he's taught me, everything that he made me think about. He's a very important part of my research project, for sure. So what do we mean when we talk about kinship? It's a good question, but a very big question, because so many kinship scholars have been debating and writing about what kinship is and isn't, and it's just... There's no way that kinship even still then look like an amalgam of all of those literature out there because it's just such a vast thing, yet also a very individualized thing, I feel. So I think my commitment to this interspecies kinship endeavor has kind of shifted gear and it's become more concerned with showing what kinship can be and what it can do and what it can look like for different people across the species boundary. One of the forms kinship seems to take between human and animal appears to resemble, as we've discussed before on this podcast, a parent-child relationship. A lot of my human participants saw and treated their dogs as their children. And there was definitely like resistance to this notion from some people who were just like, kids are kids, dogs are dogs. Like we have to let dogs be dogs. Like you can't treat them like children. But you know, people who did kind of see themselves as dog parents and they were like really adamant about that position and really emphasized that their dogs were really their children and not even like children, they were their children. I think a lot of the resistance kind of came from people who equated treating dogs like children to humanizing dogs but that really wasn't often the case. So I saw this kind of as an opportunity to look at what happens to our kinship when dogs occupy the role of children and found that actually this like specific interspecies practice of understanding our dogs as our children counters this normative and like reproductive futuristic notion that children represent the future and our care practice towards them should necessarily be future oriented. So that's why we, you know, send kids to school, they go to university and they're supposed to become independent and have their own families, da, 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 da. Um, but with dogs, like childhood and parenthood kind of operated on, on like a different temporal culture because dog children weren't expected to grow up and move out and be independent and reproduce especially to like continue on some sort of like lineage of the human family. So as one of my participants put it, like they're babies forever. And kinship in this case could queer a lot of normative perspectives that we have about children and the future and what they represent. I wonder, did you find generational differences in these attitudes? 
Is this phenomenon exclusive to younger generations, many of whom are facing lower wages and higher costs of living compared with the previous generations, and who might then use their pets as a kind of substitute for biological children? Kind of, but there were also like really interesting cases of exception that, you know, like a woman kind of close to her 60s who was just like, oh my gosh, like I love this dog. She is my baby. And she also had human children as well. So she was basically telling me that she got this dog to be the youngest born of her family after her human children all grew up and moved out. So in that case, you know, like, I think people also had this like preconception that maybe people who have human children will be less prone to look at dogs as children. But that also wasn't always the case. This was such a lovely story, but unfortunately, not all of her research had such a warm and happy theme. Myth went on to tell me of some of the more sinister sides to our kinship with animals that she encountered through her research. Another example that I saw was this like instrumentalization of multi-species kinship to this like really ugly and racist ends in digital spaces in response to a picture from like an old protest that wasn't related to Black Lives Matter explicitly of a protester like throwing a brick at a police force. The caption read, if you are black or white, I don't care. You should be shot for throwing bricks at horses and dogs. And then it said canine lives matter. Comments after comments going on about how like protesters are the real animals while the police animals who were harmed in the line of duty were innocent animals just doing their jobs. So in this case, I, I saw that like whiteness kind of worked to weaponize the kinship that they felt with police animals in order to justify their quite violent and racist disposition. And this kind of showed me that maybe multi-species kinship, which we imagine to be very like warm and fuzzy and loving, it's not always that but it's also a tool for exclusion of those that people who aren't included in that circle of kin, which in this case, for white people that I've witnessed were clearly racialized people. And that kind of shows what I think is how like whiteness functions. And it's through these false dichotomies of good animals and bad animals kind of mapped onto police animals and subjugated animals who obey human command on one end and racialize people who are supposedly quote-unquote animals who refuse to be controlled. And they all exist on this scale of animality. So good animals are closer to this epitome of human figure, which usually is like, you know, Michelangelo's David, like white man, <laughs> white man supreme, that figure. And everything else is kind of hierarchically ranked to fit the standards and purposes of that person who's supposedly at the top. This idea of a hierarchy forming the natural order of things is deeply ingrained in Western thought, despite the vast amount of scientific evidence that has disproven it time and time again. As we've discussed before on this podcast, the hierarchy has been used throughout history to oppress different groups, be it along the lines of race, sex, or species. It's that picture of like a black person being compared to a monkey and a white person being, you know, this beautiful marble figure man. And 
that kind of logic, you know, people think that that's how we used to think. Like that's how we thought race worked this way, but it never disappeared. And that logic really pervades further studies and people who, you know, who would say things like, oh, but we live in a post-racial society. Like that doesn't exist because that kind of thinking kind of permeated our culture and whatever came out of it after, after that observation was made and kind of normalized in not just in the sciences or in academia, but in like in the public thought. Unfortunately, the issue of race runs deep, even within scientific disciplines. Maith find that far from anthropology being a passive and detached observation of humanity, its very nature was rooted in hierarchical thought. Doing anthropology on like vast majority white population, especially as a non-white researcher, I think that was kind of not looked upon favorably. <laughs> and not in like an intellectual way, but kind of like a visceral discomfort kind of way from some people. A lot of people have also said that like it's not anthropological enough. And like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> like nobody can ever tell you what that means. Because if we're, if we're, you know, kind of taking the broadest term of what anthropology is, it's like the study of humans. And I am studying humans, really. <laughs> So who's to say like what's anthropological enough and what's not? But when you look at the culture of anthropology as like an institutionalized discipline and how it's it's just a bunch of white faculty members whose fieldwork was just like elsewhere, right? In like exotic places. And it's so common that there's there's a term called island ethnography. It's people going off to islands, like remote islands in the middle of nowhere to like study their culture. And it's not to say that every anthropologist who does this kind of research is like a colonial racist, but that's, that's the grounding of the discipline. And that's how it's been normalized, that this is just what we do in anthropology and doing anything else is unanthropological. It seems that this idea is so pervasive in our society that many people, particularly those who do not find themselves often on the receiving end of things like racism and sexism, are totally unaware of how they're upholding and even promoting such ideas. Even through seemingly innocuous ways, such as how we talk about our closest canine companions. That's how a lot of like racist logic works, that you know, you get a percentage of this and percentage of that and there's a purebred dog and there's a mutt and a mongrel and there is mixed breed dogs and designer dogs. And it maps on so, so nicely to how people think of things like, I don't know, like hybrid rigor that I've heard a lot of just, I guess, scientifically baseless, but socially very interesting things saying like, oh, like mixed race children are so beautiful. Right. Like people say things like that. And then like all I'm thinking about is like, oh, my gosh, they're they're talking about like cockapoos. <laughs> you know, like that's the same logic. That's how they see race. And they try to make sense of race through the same logic as how they understand dog breeds. And that's where the, the discomfort and the violence arise. Yeah, it's it's very uncomfortable and scary sometimes. 
These parallels also raise some difficult and uncomfortable ethical issues for those of us who consider ourselves both as animal liberationists, but also anti-racists. If we accept, as the progressive thinkers we consider ourselves to be, that it is morally questionable to control the bodies of others, whether through problematic historical realities such as the ownership of humans by other humans, or modern problems such as systemic oppressions like the policing of bodies belonging to women and people of colour, where does that leave us when we turn our minds to our animal companions? Even if, as we have discussed in previous episodes, we change the legal landscape to reflect our modern relationship with our companion animals as individuals that we care for rather than own, we still, to an extent, control their lives and their destinies. Those of us who promote the phrase, adopt, don't shop, often see ourselves as having saved our companion animal from a life on the streets or in a shelter. And while no doubt their lives are immeasurably improved by a warm bed, adequate food and veterinary care, our animals do not have much bodily autonomy. Often it is we, their humans, who decide when they eat, when they exercise, and even when they are permitted to engage in bodily functions like the elimination of waste. I asked Maith how she squares these thoughts with what she's learned through her research, because as comfortable and content that Frank looks as he lies beside her in her warm and cosy Scottish apartment, he never made the choice to be there. Equally, as much as I love my own little dog, I control almost every aspect of her life, which could be argued to be unethical. It's something that I struggle with in, I think, my like personal day-to-day cohabitation with Frank, right? Because you're right, like we, we control entirely how we source our dogs and how dogs exist like it's it's a human creation today right like they're bred in quite systematic ways and even even the strays like there's a whole pipeline of stray dogs go into a shelter and then they get adopted into a, a good home whatever that means and whoever gets to decide that i think that's you know i'll, I'll borrow donna haraway's words here that's the that's the part of staying with trouble, right? It's uncomfortable and we know something is off. Something feels wrong. There's something really wrong and unethical about this. But we do it because it's actually, practically speaking, it's the ethical thing to do in our given situation. Like, what am I going to do if I, you know, philosophically, theoretically disagree with dog ownership? Am I just going to dump Frank on the street? Like... And he's gonna what? Like, go die in the woods? Like, that's not an ethical solution. And I think it's important that we work towards understanding dogs as not just things to be owned, but living and feeling and thinking and learning, knowing beings who deserve some sort of respect and boundaries. And and we are learning about that through like animal welfare science and animal behavior studies and human animal studies. And, you know, I, I think the field is kind of getting bigger because we're more and more realizing that, oh shit, like they're not just like furniture or accessories that we we kind of bring into our home because they pleasure us. And once that wears off, we can just dump them. Like a lot of shelters, um, you know, say things like dog is not just for Christmas. And I think more recently people have been saying dog is not just for lockdown. And I, I think as we recognize 
like how complex of beings dogs are in themselves and that they have their inner worlds and their feelings and they are agents of change in their environment in their own right. I, I think that will help us kind of go in the right direction. And that's how I would say I kind of ease my own anxieties about that dilemma of owning another being. But yeah, I, I think it's just like an ethical matter that is important to sit with. And we can kind of try to formulate our, our everyday conduct towards our dogs and dogs in general based on that kind of ethical ruminations. I wondered, was this movement towards treating our companion animals as children perhaps an attempt to position ourselves more as caregivers, a way to try to shed the uncomfortable label of owner? I don't think we purposely do that to ease our anxieties, but it does have that effect. Because like, people who treat their dogs like kids, like, it's not like a deliberate conscious choice. Like it, it comes quite naturally to people, it seems like. You know, like I would I would call Frank like, oh, you're such a big baby or like you're such a good boy. Like it's not because I'm sitting here thinking, okay, today I'm gonna be an ethical dog owner and I'm gonna I'm gonna treat my dog with respect that he deserves. It's that kind of parental kind of love comes in this very naturalized way towards our dogs. To talk about Haraway again, because she's like the big animal studies person. She talked about how responsibility isn't necessarily just like these codified duties that we owe to each other, but also this practice of care and response in this like circuitous way, which I guess like makes up multi-species kinship. And it's, it's that we each have like a demand of care from one another and we attune to each other's bodies and attend to each other's bodily care needs, such as cuddling, feeding, you know, whatever it may take in everyday mundane sense. And we we just carry that on. And that's that's responsibility. That sense of, you know, I'm, I'm listening to what you need to say and you're going to do the same. And we're just going to attend to each other in this this loop of care and response. What really struck me during our conversation was what a practical outlook Maeve had cultivated through her work on kinship. Although it was clear she had pursued her questions with the same academic rigour as any good researcher, her conclusions, so far, were refreshingly down-to-earth. Very everyday, mundane care practices. And yeah, like it's, it's always just in the ordinary things where the magic lies, I think. Because there is there's no like quick fix to kinship. Like you gotta build it with time and energy and just just grit work. <laughs> yeah. But far from being dull and boring, these so-called mundane everyday practices also have an element of beauty, she discovered. I do have a chapter on creative ecologies of our multi-species kinship. And I talk about how the ways in which we interact with each other, like the, the everyday details of it is like, it's so musical and it's so 
beautiful like even the way that like frank kind of tangles me up when we go on a walk and he smells something over there and he just kind of pulls me in that direction like we're dancing and there's like there's some kind of weird rhythm to it and it's i think it's just it's just beautiful and i think that matters in itself like it doesn't have to have any kind of like analytical intellectual stuff to it like we can just be like oh that's so nice and like that's good enough <laughs> that's my take on academic writing <laughs> of course not every academic pursues a research question that has such practical value in their own lives mate's work seemed to be informed by her relationship with her dog and equally her relationship with frank perhaps developed into something even more meaningful thanks to what she was learning through her research i wondered did she feel like frank had taught her anything through his kinship with her? Just like that, like he demands care from me as I do from him. And bodily care is like so relational and kinshipy in this way. And making kin can be like such like a joyous and fulfilling experience that provides like, you know, different perspectives on broad questions. Like, like I'm thinking a lot about this these days, which is like, how do we live well? And I don't really have like a put together argument for it because it's such a big question, but it's something that I've really gotten to think more about and become more invested in because of my kinship with Frank, for sure. So if kinship can be thought of in practical terms as a kind of exchange of giving to each other what is needed, is kinship then a type of symbiosis? And if so, then what of other symbiotic relationships that we see in the animal kingdom? Could some of those relationships also be considered kinship? Is there any difference? I don't think there really is. I think it's just that we've studied kinship in intra-species human contexts, and we studied symbiotic relationships in like biology and ecology and those fields. And I think that actually makes a really interesting and good case for interdisciplinary work that we're basically studying how different species live together what do they do and you know the scale of the studies could be different and the questions that you ask might be different but ultimately it is just about like coexisting together and the nuances and intricacies involved in it although her focus was human canine relationships I was keen to know, did she have any nice stories about other species and the kinship that had developed between two non-human animals? From my fieldwork, I've seen between different dogs and like dog and a cat or like a bird and a cat or bird and a dog, like, you know, in, in like domestic pet situations. So I've seen a few of those, but, um, but like even, you know, in, in what we call the wild, we, we see that, like we see how different species cohabit and they have, you know, in, I guess biologically they call it like symbiotic relationships, right? But I think that's ultimately like what kinship is, like living well together. And, you know, we see it between like a tree and, and ivy. We see it between like mushrooms and different kinds of like logs. We see it, yeah, we see it everywhere. We just don't call it kinship because that's supposedly like a human term. But I'm, I'm trying to kind of 
resist that categorization of kinship. So what started as a lighthearted look at relationships between humans and their closest companions took, unfortunately, a really dark turn. A surprise not only to me during this podcast, but also to Maith during her research. It's also done something more in that I've, I've seen a lot more ugliness to it than I anticipated, like with the lockdown and Black Lives Matter protests kicking off here. And it, it just went to a place in the dog world where I did not see would go. So yeah, that, that was a little more than I bargained for, but it was interesting and I think really important data to work with. And yeah, it's something that I would like to learn a bit more about, like how the internet shapes and is shaped by like far right beliefs and what does that do to people's relationship with their dogs. This complex relationship that we as human beings have for the other is something that really deserves more time to explore and unpack. Whether it be love for our companion animals, hate for certain other groups, even within our own species, or careless disinterest about other species that we use, for example, in our food industries. Such an incredibly big topic is so daunting to address, but my conversation with Maith gives me hope that there are people in this world who are up for such a challenge. And it is a challenge. Those who benefit from the status quo those who gain from the traditional colonized version of everything that we know through science and academia are not usually so receptive to any challenge of their ideas or challenges to the paradigms to which they subscribe. It's no mean feat, but luckily we have young researchers like Maeth to blaze a trail to a more equitous future in knowledge. I think my kind of sense of calling into the discipline was that that's like we're gonna think about what this traditionally very colonial discipline can do if somebody else does it somebody who looks different does it (laughs) that's all for today my sincerest thanks to may than for her time and candor in speaking with me this week i hope this episode has cast new light on your relationships with the animals in your lives I know that it has for me. Thanks for listening. Today's show was written, researched, narrated, and produced by me, Catherine Cray. Mustafa Al Nasari was the technical assistant, and Claire Cray is our executive producer. The music was provided by Nature's Eye at Pixabay. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Just search for The Animalistic Podcast. Until next time, stay safe, be kind.